Made with the silent sufferer in mind, I Am Podcast is dedicated to infertility advocacy and sharing diverse stories to help you feel validated, seen, and heard. I am your host, Monique Farouk, and I am one in eight two. Healing is best when done together. Hey friend, could you please do me the honor of leaving a five-star rating and review in Apple iTunes? This will increase our show's ranking and reach more friends who may be silently suffering with infertility too. We're stronger together, staying connected, getting plugged in. website, theassistedhatching.com, she says, infertility affects one in eight women, and we should not be expected to solve for it silently in the shadows. So as I geared up for my sixth IVF treatment cycle, I decided to share my journey openly and candidly with the dual purpose of channeling the physical and emotional stress of infertility in a creative way, but also to encourage healthy dialogue on a topic that is riddled with stigma and shame. Navigating the world of infertility has been confusing and isolating. I often imagine what it would be like to tell a best friend about my experience. What would I say? I started writing in hopes that it would serve as a release and I would feel less alone in my unique path to parenthood. You can check out Asia's website at theassistedhatching.com. Omar Jr. is joining us today. So if you hear a little noise in the background, it's just my baby. Thank you guys so much for your time. Here's Asia. So Asia, tell me, dear, how you and hubby met. Was it love at first sight? Was it a blind date? What what happened there? Yeah. So we met in New York. Um, we were both living and working in the city. I had actually just graduated from college. So I went to NYU and I just finished up and was starting my first job out of school in finance. Um, and so he was in finance too. So we met through some mutual friends at a party and sort of started talking very casually. It was like one of those big groups of people that you would see on the weekends. Um, mm-hmm. And then we sort of hit it off. We started hanging out a little bit. Um, I showed up, the first time we went out, I showed up an hour late because I was working. <laughs> and I was like, well, if he's willing to wait around for an hour for me, even though he probably had no idea if I was even going to show up. There's probably something there. Right, right. Yeah, that was 2010. Um, And, you know, we sort of, so we started dating. We've been together that entire time. And then we got married in 2015. Um, Right, my my husband, Bill, was in business school at that point. So between his first and second year of business school, we got married. Um, and I moved out to California where he was at, you know, we did things very traditionally, Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. never lived together, we never sort of shared a space, so it was very traditional in the sense that the first time we lived together is when we got married, um, and there was something special about that, because it felt like something was changing in our lives, 
So yeah, we've been married for almost five and a half years. Yeah, we celebrated five years this past summer. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. That's not easy. Marriage is not easy, you guys. Well, you all know that anyway, if you're probably listening. I know I do have some single friends that listen. So yeah, it's not easy being in a relationship and then um, bringing your lives together. And I totally resonate with not having lived together before marriage. My husband and I never lived together either before marriage, so it does have like a special little element, so I totally resonate with that. So how long had you guys been married before? Well, I, I know, but for the listeners, how long was it before you started getting worried and feeling like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, so for the first two years of marriage, we didn't try um, because one of those years, Bill was in business school. And, you know, we just needed to figure out our lives. We knew we'd be moving back to New York from California. Um, And then once we moved back to New York, we just took the first year to get settled, focus on our work, focus on our jobs. Um, And then two years into it, we started talking about having a family and starting to try. I, I, for some reason, have always had this, like, gut feeling that it wasn't going to be easy. There's no reason for me to believe that. My mom had, she had difficult pregnancies, but it was very easy for her to get pregnant. Um, So she had me and my brother five years apart, and that's the family she wanted. So there was never really like an indicator of why I should be worried. I think I'm just generally a nervous person. Um, And I I was like, you know, my life has been really great so far. I've been very lucky. I've had every opportunity afforded to me. I wonder if this is where something's gonna go wrong. And we tried, we were on like a summer vacation and you know, it's sort of funny people say, oh, go relax, like on vacation, you got pregnant immediately. So we're like, okay, this is the time to start trying. Um, We started trying, nothing happened for the first few months and I didn't expect it to, but that like little voice in my head kept being like, there's something going on because everyone around me was getting pregnant. Like there wasn't a weekend or a dinner or a social event where there wasn't an announcement of that kind um, because our group of friends sort of got married around the same age. We were similar ages, so it wasn't surprising. So I went to see just my gynecologist like four months into trying, which mm-hmm. I know is so early. Mm-hmm. Um, people always say like, wait for a year if you're under 35. I had, I was, ju- I was 29, I was about to turn 30. And I just went to her, I was like, there's, what's the worst that could happen? So we went, she, sort of was like half laughed at me, half was like, you're crazy, you need to go home and do the ovulation um, tests, do this, do that, and all of that. So I was like, okay, I mean, I am doing that. But I pressed her to do more tests because at that point I knew nothing about this world. Like, I had just come to find out that there were only three days a month that you could get pregnant, so pretty new. So she was like, okay, fine, I'll run some tests for you. She did like the typical AMH, FSH, the first the first gateway tests, everything came back normal. Everything checked out on paper. Um, I had really regular periods. There was nothing wrong. Um, So she was like, you know, it takes healthy, perfectly normal couples up to a year. So why don't you guys go back to trying? And I think I just continued to push her, which in hindsight probably was better because Mm -hmm. I advocated for myself and Mm -hmm. asked her to really do things that she probably wouldn't have recommended for another year. Um, I'm also very impatient, so (laughs) I I was like, I just need to get started. I need to get answers. This doesn't make sense. Um, 
she then recommended us to an RE where we went. Um, and he sort of said the same thing. He's like, you're so healthy. Like, you guys are young. There's no reason this shouldn't happen. But I'll do some more tests. And, you know, he did the ultrasound, the blood work, like all the semen, the sperm tests. Everything checked out on paper. And I think that's what's been one of the most frustrating parts about my journey is that never at a single point was there, aha, like ding, 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 we found it. This is what's, what's the matter. Um, so we asked him, like, what do we do next? And he said, I would recommend you do our um, IUIs, which is always usually the first step in pretty much any journey. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a few of those, you know, medicated, non-medicated, and they didn't take. And after that, I think that's when my RE started getting a little concerned. And he was like, I think we should move to IVF. So my first IVF was exactly a year from when we had started my journey um, into trying. And my first cycle was a total disaster. I think that's the first time for both me, Bill, my husband, and my doctor where we like, okay, I think there's like some serious issues going on. Um, my cycle, we got a decent amount of eggs, but what has always been a theme in mm-hmm. my treatment is that I get very few mature eggs. Mm. So I'll, I'll get 20 eggs at the on like day of retrieval, but only 40% of them will be mature. So we just start from a very low base. And then after that, there's the attrition, the fertilization attrition, the day three attrition, the day five attrition. So if we're lucky, we may end up with one or two five-day blastocysts, like the holy grail of embryos, right? Um, so that is when the first time we started seeing this like compromised egg quality, which, as you know, there is no test for. You can't right. test for it. Um, and that's when there was the question, well, like, does she have endometriosis? Is that what's causing it? I didn't have any of her symptoms, you know, sort of like the debilitating pain, like the painful um, periods, nothing like that. So Mm -hmm. I was very surprised. Um, So first cycle, no embryos, nothing to freeze, nothing to transfer. Um, And at that point, we sort of were like, oh, man, like, this is supposed to work. Everyone said IVF works. What's going on? So we took a step back, decided to change clinics, go to like a smaller, more specialized clinic that has fewer patients, doesn't do like the reproductive factory sort of. um, Mm, The franchise feel, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So we decided to go to a smaller clinic and have more personalized attention, which we also felt was missing in our first IVF. And I think that added to the frustration when no one can give us any answers like why this had failed. So after that, I have done six, yeah, six retrievals. Similar story. Very few embry- very, very few maturity um, rate, and then very few embryos that make it. Out of six, out of seven trans, um, retrievals, I think I've only had two cycles where I've actually had a, a blast that needs sent to testing. Wow. So. Um, the first time we did that and we mm-hmm. had two embryos that came back PGS normal, it was, we were thrilled. We we're like, yes, this is it. We made it. It's going to work. Um, and just those embryos didn't take. One was a chemical pregnancy. The other didn't take. 
and we started doing retrievals again. We had disappointing cycles, just no embryos, either no embryos or abnormal embryos. Um, so for us, like a great day is when we can even have embryos to testing. That's sort of, that's the dream. Um, my most recent cycle, which I did in October, we got lucky um, because I had surgery over the summer. Mm -hmm. Was it surgery for your endometriosis? Yeah. Okay. It was like the laparoscopy surgery. Yeah. Surgery for suspected endometriosis. Okay. Um, and she found something. She definitely was like, yep, there's like stage two endometriosis going on. She took it all out. It was one of those excision surgeries instead, um, instead of just like the laser burn. So we have no idea if that's what contributed to better results in October, but we did get two embryos that tested PGS normal, and I'm getting one put back in day after tomorrow. Wow. Wow. Let's see. What is today? December 1st? Wow. December. Yeah, December 3rd. Wow. 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 <laughs> so you said something earlier that struck me, which was... IVF is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And where do you think that idea comes from? Is it, do you think it comes from the money that we pay financially, the investment that we make, or because we have these world-renowned doctors helping us to get pregnant that makes us feel like this, this should work, this is supposed to work, this is going to be it? I would say it's it's a few different things. The investment that you're making in it is, is significant. You know, in some cases it's, it's, it's life-changing, you know, it's a lot of money because you make sacrifices in other parts of your life that you may not have had to, had you not had this big outpour that's yeah. happening every few months or however so you can afford it. I think my expectations were set because of what the doctor told us, and also because of my profile. I was 29, 30, no health issues. So I was made to believe that because everything is checking out on paper, it works. And I think a lot of it was just lack of awareness on my part. Like, mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't know anything about this world. I went to the doctor that my gynecologist recommended I didn't look into, well, who's the best RE specialist, you know? I just followed what was told to me. And that's something that now that I think about, I wish I had been more proactive about and said, you know what? This could be a one-time thing or this could be a 10-time thing like it yeah. is for me now. But had I taken that initiative and said, let me find out who the best doctor is. So that was for it. Well, that was what I thought about it. You know, that there's no way this is going to work. Like we're going to some of the best clinics in the city. Um, I also feel like a lot of what you see on TV and shows like builds that into you. Like, oh, IVF is going to produce twins. Mm -hmm, IVF mm -hmm, is going mm -hmm. to work. Like, it's it's the silver bullet that cures everything. So there's a lot of this misconception, and I didn't know a single person who had been through it. So had I been able to talk to them, I think I would have been better equipped to understand. Yeah. I didn't know any of it. I think it was lack of awareness. Just like wanting to believe something so badly that mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. shut off your critical thinking for a few minutes. I think that's what happened. Yeah, I totally agree. There's just 
it's always it always feels like it's definite like it, this is it this is going to work and I feel like the same thing happens when people start looking into adoption um mm-hmm. that there's this definite and then when it becomes unsuccessful then it's totally devastating because it's the opposite of our expectation and I wanted to ask you as well with having had so many retrievals that were initial um that didn't create the numbers as far as having PGS tested normal embryos or even making it to five day blastocysts, four frozen egg transfers and stuff. Paint for me a picture of how that feels. Having gone through so many retrievals with not the type of success that you wanted or outcome that you wanted. Yeah, it's, it's devastating. It gets easier the more you go through it. I think if you were to compare my shock and disappointment the first time versus four, fifth, sixth time, it was very different. The first time it was shock, and then those feelings morphed into guilt, into anger, into frustration. Um, and the cycle itself, you know, it's it's two weeks of a lot of stuff. You know, you're taking injections, you're going to the doctor daily, you're getting poked and prodded. So you start building your hopes up, and every time you hope that it's different. It's like, oh, this time it's different because I ate that gluten-free, sugar-free diet, or this time it's different because I went to acupuncture four times a week. So, you know, you Mm -hmm. always, like, tweak it, and you put so much hope in the protocol, um, and you really say, like, you, I almost, like, sometimes give myself permission to say, like, what if? What if it finally works? What if it's it's the time. And when it doesn't, you sort of, you're, you're crushed. You, not only am I crushed, it's, it's a family affair here, right? It's your husband, it's you, it's mm-hmm. your family who's been pretty involved in this, calling to check in. It just becomes very disappointing. And I, I always remember that when I get the bad news, my mind goes blank. It's like blackout. I can't, I have no idea where I am, who I'm talking to. I sometimes even hard to like continue the conversation with a doctor on the phone. It's just, I usually hand the phone off to Bill or someone. Um, but then you take a step back, you get gather yourself again and you kind of keep going. And I mean, there is a point at which we will stop. I just don't know what that point is yet um, or what that point looks like for us. You know, we... We're still on the path to try and have a biological child, but if not, we're open. We've talked about other options. We are thinking about other ways to create a family. You know, there's so many paths to parenthood. One is neither better, and they're all they're all great ways to build your family. So you know, you talk, you start thinking about other options, and the first time you do, you get scared. But the more you talk about it, the more you understand your situation that your body is not acting the way that it should maybe there is something else to do so I mean the feelings they're just they're all over the place it's like in the beginning you might get some good news Mm -hmm. and then a day later you might get completely shattered so there's just no way to prepare for it you do the best you can yeah yeah and I always say like you know, taking it minute by minute and hour by hour mm-hmm. sometimes. I think for a lot of us, there's moments 
in weeks and days where, you know, that minute, that hour, those, those, those are the only things we have to hold on to. And so what has, what has helped you to continue a longer journey or what is the thought or a picture that you have in your mind that helps you keep me moving forward after having to go through so much to get to this point? my relationship has helped keep me in line and helped me to keep going. Um, the support, the love that we have at home, and it's something both of us want and something both of us are going to continue to work towards. And I think that's really the guiding factor. You know, we also, Bill and I come from different backgrounds, different cultures. So we, for us, you know, we had always thought about having this family that was racially diverse, that was culturally, um, religiously diverse. So, you know, it's hard to say goodbye to that dream of having, you know, a kid who's like half of both of us. So I was born and raised in Pakistan. I'm a practicing Muslim. I'm of South Asian descent. And he is... He's from, he's American, he's from Michigan, he's as blonde as they come. So, you know, it's like mm -hmm. thinking about that, that's the picture. Like, before we got married, we talked, we had a lot of a hard conversation at that point because we didn't want to get to the phase where we're like, oh no, we are married and now we have to make these decisions about like, how do we raise our, fa our kids? Like, what holidays do they celebrate? What language do they speak? So we really tried to have those conversations mm -hmm. from the outset. Um, and at that point, the biggest concern we had was like, how are we going to raise our children? But now it's like, are we even going to have these children? So that's like the picture that I hold on to. And I've been lucky that I have support from my family. Like my mom is as invested in this as I am. She knows every blood draw. She knows every doctor's appointment. That's been helpful to like be able to talk with her, to cry to her, to like vent to her. Um, that's sort of what I hold on to as we think about, like, do we keep going on? And I think a large part of it is Bill believes this more than I do, but he, he's convinced that this will work at some okay. point. Yeah. So, you know, you, you hold on to that and you do whether it works out in a different way. We'll see. But that's sort of, that's the picture. So how was it? coming out to your mom and maybe some other family members being uh, Pakistanian. My husband is from Bangladesh, so he had some, a lot of thoughts about it um, when, when I was diagnosed. So how, what was your version of this story like, and how did your family initially react to it? My mom was super supportive. She's known from the very beginning. Um, I it was never a moment of like, oh, I have something to tell you. Um, in the beginning, she would joke when we had just gotten married. She's like, well, when are you guys having kids? And I'd always respond with something silly and be like, oh, like tomorrow, not, not knowing that this would become a very serious issue, but just to get my mom off my back. But once we did start trying, I, I told her immediately, I was like, you know, it's not working out or seeing a doctor. So my, my immediate family knows, my mom, dad, and my brother, and then some other family members that I'm very close with, like my mom's sisters, my aunts, um, one of whom actually struggled with secondary infertility. So she also very much gets that. Everyone in my home 
is believes in science. So that's like one of the best things about all of this. You know, they they don't think about this as a religious issue or a cultural issue. They think about it as a medical issue. It's a disease. And when you have any other kind of disease, you go to a doctor and you seek treatment. So that's how I have always approached it and that's how they have to. So it's never been embarrassing or it's never been what do I say to people? I'm not as open about it. So if I went to a large family gathering, not everyone would know. And that I think is also because while in some cultures people are starting to talk about this a little bit more, in South Asian cultures it's just not talked about. Right. It's yeah. very much a private in your home women's issue that, like you said, one in eight women will deal with, but it's it's never really talked about. Um, and my mom would sometimes tell me, oh, I told X, Y, Z, or I told this person. And I would be surprised. I was like, well, do you feel comfortable? I don't care, but do you feel comfortable telling people? And she's like, yeah, totally, because you never know whose prayer or whose thoughts about you will actually make this work. So there's always that element because as a Muslim like background, you know, we're very close. We pray. Um, we sort of think about what it is in our lives that we need some help with. So I think because of that, it's, it's been very open. And a lot of times she'll tell me like, oh, your aunt said if you say if you say this like quick little prayer and do that, then that'll be good. So you know, there's like little mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. that she will come back to me with. So it's sort of been like a a family affair. Everyone's super invested in it, and yeah, I am very lucky. If I yeah, about that, I'm very lucky. That's so incredible. Very so incredible that um, your family has been so supportive and 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 fully cheering you on and you and your husband on. So that's amazing. And so when did you decide that you wanted to be public about your journey on Instagram and find community with other people? Yeah, so, you know, I probably found this community very early on in my journey um, because, like I said, I didn't know anyone who was going through it. All my friends were getting pregnant, so I really didn't have anyone that I could talk to about this. So as with most things in my life, I came to the internet in search of internet friends, and I quickly discovered there's this whole robust community of Mm -hmm. female storytelling and women who have been through something similar. And, you know, at first I sort of lurked in the shadows. I read posts. I read comments. I, I initially, like, this is... I was even afraid to comment or like someone's post because mm. I was afraid that someone would see it in my non-fertility life and then get curious about what was going on. So the balance for me was very precarious, the balance between my real life, and I use quotation marks, and my fertility life. Um, so, you know, I continued to lurk in the corners. I started making friends with women that I'd never met, but you become part of their process they become part of your process you dm them you send them good luck text messages and i found that i often could relate more to these women that i had befriended on the internet than i could to those in my real life and you know i continued to not have the courage yet to be public about it and i think you know it's also like 
IVF is a full-time job. I, I do have a full-time job. It just, it's, it was something that always fell to the wayside. You know, I was like, oh, I'll get to it. I, I know my story is valuable. I know my story is important. And then this summer, I actually started writing. And that was something that really helped me. I just sat down one day and I was like, I'm going to put down everything that happened to me on paper. It doesn't have to be nicely worded. It doesn't have to be like beautiful prose, but I'm just going to put it all out there. And I wrote and six or seven pages later, I had this, this stream of conscience document. And that's really where it started. Um, I started a little blog, talked about some of the things that I was struggling with. And just this past month, I was like, all right, I'm going to take the plunge. And I've been writing, so I have... I have this outlet that I think being able to do it on Instagram would be another level. And I wanted mm -hmm. to do it in a way that was, that brought some levity to my situation. You know, I felt okay. like I was always sad. I was always unhappy and I wanted to do it in a way that I knew best. You know, I've spent my entire career working in fashion after I left finance and that's something that's a big part of who I am. So I thought, you know, is there a way that I can like, meld my two lives together and talk about it in my own voice and in my own tone which tends to be a little sarcastic a little sassy like that's and you know that's what I felt like that was most authentic to me I love that and I, and I love that you found a way to melt your, your worlds together and I think it's so funny that we always refer to our fertility world and our regular lives as two separate lives you know and it always feels that way that we have two different faces that we're walking around with when we are diagnosed with infertility. And it really is true because we often deal with it completely opposite of how we, who we are as everyday people, you know, um, and you being an opinionated woman and having a voice and then all of a sudden not having a voice because of this one part of your life that it's like almost completely taken over you, you know, and, um, so I commend you for stepping out and just putting yourself out there, even if just one person reads or comes across your page, you know, and just liberating yourself and taking that power back. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's been very liberating. So if you had a friend that you were talking to and she was new to the world of infertility, what's one or two things you would tell her going forward? Yeah, I would tell her to... I know it's overwhelming, but try to, to do a lot of your own research. Try to really find the best care and a place and a doctor that you're comfortable with. We're on our third clinic, so it took me a while to find my place. But I think that's super important because if you find the right clinic, even if your journey takes a while, you're at the same place. So I think that is extremely important. And the second, which... I, which is advice that I wish I had taken myself was you don't need to bottle all of this up like this is hard enough and there's going to be moments of um of uncomfortable situations and times where people may feel just a little uncomfortable at what you have to say but be open about it and especially if someone if something someone says rubs you the wrong way which has happened so much Stand up for yourself, because I've been the person who will 
smile and laugh and be like, ha ha, yeah, no, yeah. But really, like, I go home and cry after because someone's comments are so hurtful to me. So I think, like, it's easier said than done, but Mm -hmm, totally standing up for yourself and being like this is what i'm going through i appreciate your experience or how easy it was for you and that's great but i i have been having a tough time and here's why so i think that that courage and being able to say that to someone i wish i had done as well yeah yeah i agree and i love what you said about not needing to bottle bottle all of it up and go at it alone and finding a way to release it and um I think that's great for us to end there on a positive note guys and I thank you Asia so much for your time today and coming on a pod and speaking to us about your journey and I'm wishing you all the best with your upcoming cycle in a few days and thank you friends for tuning in to Infertility and Me podcast if you enjoyed today's episode friend Take a screenshot and let me know on Instagram and tag Infertility and Me Podcast. You can also reach me at infertilityandmepodcast.com with your questions, comments, and feedback.